Today is uh, February 11th, uh, 2024, and we're going to complete our series on contentment. This is lesson 12 on the sixth part of learning contentment. And I have, let's see, one, two, I have three, maybe four sections, depending on how you want to divide it. Um, And the first section here, uh, we're going to review this idea of being sensible. And then we're going to spend some time together, uh, not with me lecturing uh, about contentment, but we'll have a little workshop where I'm going to give you some scenarios. And then you can describe how you might help someone be sensible in pursuing contentment in those different circumstances that they find themselves in. I've got three slides. We'll just pick one or two topics off the slide, and I want your opinion as to what you would say, uh, how you're going to do that. So before we look at those scenarios, I want to cover this first by way of review, uh, and I hope you'll see the connection here. on being sensible part one and being sensible part two. I mean that as a bit of a play on the words. We're looking at sensibility in two different ways. The first is looking at this question that, that Watson mentions, whether a Christian may not be sensible of his condition and yet be contented. And his answer was yes, for else he is not a saint, but a stoic. So when we think about uh, being uh, content and being sensible of difficult or hard providences. We realize there are times when our conditions of our life and our circumstances make it very difficult uh, to be of a cheerful disposition. You might be in the depths of despair. You might be sad. You might be grieved. And we feel those things. We were designed to feel those things. The providence was created for us to feel those things. God knows it pinches. He's pinching. So to say, I feel the pinch, makes is reasonable. But then he has a follow-up to this, which is the second sense of being sensible, and that there is no sin but labors either to hide itself under some mask, or if it cannot be concealed, then to vindicate itself by some apology. This sin of discontent I find very witty in its apologies. We must lay it down as a rule that discontent is a sin, so that all the pretenses and apologies wherewith it labors to justify itself are but the painting and dressing of a strumpet. If we can fashion our life in a rule-based form, and we can agree that this rule of we will not allow ourselves to be discontent or be persuaded by witty apologies, then we can recognize when these hard providences come, recognize the rule is this hard providence does not justify me becoming discontent. So I have to unmask this apology. I need to see it for what it is and then deal with it. So being sensible in second sense of the word is to have our wits about us, to be able to govern our lives by rule and reason that we understand that we are not going to be persuaded by the devil. So in this second sense, we are being reminded that God has made us rational beings, not just feeling beings, but rational beings, and that sin lies crouching at the door and is waiting for us. 
It's waiting for the right circumstances to come along so it can pounce and consume us. But we're instructed to not be deceived and to not be overcome, but to keep our wits about us so that we can act <clears throat> without sin. So, with that in mind, uh, Watson naturally, in chapter 10 of his work, uh, has a chapter titled, Assuasive to Contentment. And it contains 12 different scenarios that I expect he encountered in his life as a pastor, where people brought to him difficult life circumstances and brought an apology for why, in this particular set of circumstances, they had sufficient reason to be discontent. So we're going to take a look at three different slides. There are four of them on each slide. We'll take a look at the slide, read off the, the incidents, and then we'll talk about it. How would we discuss this with someone? Now, we've already discussed the rightness of being sensible in the first sense of the word, of things being pinched. We're not indifferent to feelings. We're not stoics. That's not part of the discussion today. So when you see some of these things, we're not interested in how would you comfort this person. That took place in the previous episode. This is the episode, how to defeat the apology the sin of discontent is making to justify itself so that we can have our wits about us. So we're not cold, callous, indifferent. We're not being stoics in this class to the pinch that other people are feeling. We've just covered it in a previous time. So with that in mind, let's look at the, uh, let's look at the first series in Assuasive to Contentment. Right out of the gate, the first thing Watson mentions is, I've lost a child. He comes to you and he says, I've lost a child. I don't think I could be content. And Watson says, don't give in to the apology of being discontented because you've lost a child. Uh, I think it takes great conviction for him to start this list this way. I've lost a child. Number two, I have great part of my estate strangely melted away and trading begins to fail. Number three, it is sad with me in my relations. Where should I find most comfort? There I have most grief. My family, who I want dearly to be with me, is against me. What am I going to do? And my friends have dealt very unkindly with me and proved false. So I think all of those are things that we can put within the realm of imagination. There shouldn't be too much of a stretch. So you comment on any of them. You can pick one. We can discuss it at length. Or you can make comments about several of them. But somebody comes to you and says, I've lost a child. I have a right to be discontented. My estate is strangely melted away. I'm thinking of Proverbs, how riches take wings and poof, it's just gone. What do I do? I'm ruined. I have nothing left. What do I do? I need to be declared bankruptcy. How do you answer? These are circumstances people are going to have in life and they may have them in your circle. My family is alienated, melted away. My friends, they're treacherous, they're no good. What are you going to do? Do they have a right to be discontent? Liz. That's the first sense of being That's sensible. Right. It's okay to grieve. It is. Uh, and then I would say, but 
That's right. It's no time to murmur. It's no time to sin. I would say it slightly stronger that it's not just okay to grieve. It's good to grieve. And no one should regret spending time grieving over these difficulties. Absolutely. Sam? That's right. Uh, we, we have a right and a privilege to come to God to describe these things. But we're going back to the first understanding of being sensible. Relationally, not the second one. You, can, you know, I, you, you may be, yes, I've talked to God about this, but I'm still not happy about it. How can we help them be content in their distress? It's hard to separate the comfort. I mean, I, know, I understand why you're saying we've done that, we've already talked about that, and we need to focus on this. Can you give us an example to help us get our brain off the, sure. the comfort? So one of the things uh, Watson says, uh, he quotes 1 Thessalonians 5.18, that we are to be content not only when God gives mercies, but when he takes away. If we must in everything give thanks, then in nothing we might be discontented. So we, we're seeing a scriptural rule in place that in everything that we give thanks, perhaps God has given us, uh, removed something that might be a thorn. We don't, we don't understand how, the, how, the, how life would have eventually worked its way out. Children are lent to us, not given to us. They belong to the Lord. And to the Lord, they must return. Um, we are being stewards. And God is caring for his people the way he sees fit. Who are we to micromanage God? That would be one set of ideas. Might be more. Any other scenarios? Yeah. I think in number three, you should remind them that uh, we are sons and daughters of the Lord, that we have family in Christ. That's right, that uh, family relations are not the end of all relations, and sometimes they don't work out. Sometimes the family relations might be acting wickedly, they might be acting foolishly. We might take comfort that the... That the um, the circumstances in which they're communicating to us uh, are not things that would be best for us. Uh, maybe they don't understand. Maybe they don't have the bigger picture. Uh, maybe they're just cruel and shallow individuals. And God has placed them in our life as something that must be endured. I think that would point to like, a lot of our situations are difficult, but we don't understand God's plan, but so acknowledging that goodness of God and that's a that's a I'm glad you mentioned that's a theme that runs throughout these the uh, latent assumptions built into discontent is somehow I have a right to censure God for the expression of his goodness to me in these circumstances. And that's an unacknowledged activity, but that 
that's, an, I think, an accurate description of our activity, that when we're engaging in discontent, we're saying, God, in this expression of your wise governance in my life and in this expression of your goodness to me, I've deemed it cruel. That's really what you're saying. And, and those ideas cover many expressions of, uh, of discontent. Let's just go ahead. we've erred in our ways and relying too much on family. Um, that's That could be a help too, absolutely. All of them are opportunities to draw closer. Uh, right. Can't help them. Oh yeah, you, it's hard not to think of Job when you look at these things. Alright, number five. I am under great reproaches. Or number six, disrespect in the world. I have not that esteem from men as is suitable, suitable to my quality and grace. Boy, nobody talks like that today. I meet with very great sufferings for the truth. Or number eight, the prosperity of the wicked. All of those. Christ endured all of those. Christ endured all those. What, what else can we say... What else can we say in addition to recognize that Christ suffered all those? We understand our suffering. Mm-hmm. He did not sin. It, we, that's right. But that happened to Jesus. Why is it happening to me? Because, we, because you're his. You know, promised that because you're his, it's a benefit that you will get to. You weren't his, you might not have to deal with any of these things. You just cast them off through your it, It's difficult to remember to take up your cross. And what they said about Jesus, they, they will say about us. It's one thing to read about it in the life of Jesus. It's one thing to realize he went through it. But it's another thing to, to have to admit, I didn't realize that this is what I was signing up for. I promise you, the circumstances of your reproach or the lack of esteem are not going to be the circumstances that you recognize as being designed to make you suffer for the sake of the gospel or truth. There will always be, that's the wittiness of the sin of discontent, is to put a color on the circumstances in your life to say, that's true, but that's for those people. That's for when the wicked communists are coming over and harassing them. That's not this right now. So it's different. It's not different. This is what you're signing up for on many of these things. Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, when, when he thought long and hard in the prosperity of the wicked, he, he thought everything was in vain to serve God. Why am I doing all this? Why did I sign up for all this? And then I considered the wicked and saw their end, their, their, 
Feet shall slide in due time. Yeah, don't, em- don't emulate the wicked. Don't envy the wicked. Yeah, those are good. What else? Any other thoughts on, on these? I don't really know what to think about number six, in a sense. Disrespect in the world. I have not that esteem for men as is suitable to my quality and grace. I can imagine there might be any number of things that are not actually related to discontent (laughs) that you might want to tell somebody who shows up and says, according to my quality and grace, I'm really not getting the feedback I want to get from people. (laughs) Well, (laughs) maybe. All right. I think the application of the wording is sort of uh, ancient or you know, old obsolete, but I think the feeling. It's true. It's very, it's very true. Common. That's right. I mean, you mentioned first, uh, you know, I lost a child. Of course, that was much more common. Much more common. In that era. But I'd say this is very common. This is much more common than losing a child today. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Yeah, you will encounter number six. But if they're smart, they won't say it like that. <laughs> but I, I've heard if you go to ratemyprofessor.com, I find this kind of <laughs> just go to ratemyprofessor.com. That's right. Yeah. yeah, maybe that ought to be the first thing we ask is, have you recently been rated on ratemyprofessor.com? <laughs> yeah. Really, if we update a suasive to contentment, and that's the title chapter, we should replace number six with, I've recently been rated on ratemyprofessor.com and I don't feel like according to my, my grace and my condition that I'm really being treated well. <laughs> yeah. Alright, uh, number nine. It is the evil of the times. The times are full of heresy and impiety and that's what troubles me. It's not, it's not directly me. It's look at the world around us. Number 10, lowliness of parts and gifts. I cannot discourse with that fluency nor pray with that elegancy, elegancy of others. I'm just not any good in the Christian life. I can't pray like this person. I can't read the Bible like that person. I can't do this. I can't do that. The troubles of the church, alas, alas. We really do need to bring back alas. The other language is old, but alas. <laughs> Alas, I actually had a professor use alas with me once. Um, alas, my disquiet and discontent is it's not so much for myself as the public. The church of God suffers. And 12, it is not my trouble that troubles me, but it is my sins that do disquiet and discontent me. It's really not me, me. It's the sins, me, that bother me. That's what gives me room to be discontent. Now, I, I can tell you, as someone who's been an elder for a while, and I'm sure we could get confirmation from the others, that this is exactly the sort of reasoning people will use when they come in to talk to you about things. This, this may be weirded in a, word way, in a, in a weird way, um, but discontent is witty, and this is how it wants to sneak in, to make an apology and convince you of it. So... Let's attack these last four.
That's right. It is good to recognize what's going on in the world around us, but yeah, it's not a sin to uh, to see the church in the state it's in and talk to God about it. Absolutely. There have always been evil times. It's always been evil times. So I got to turn the news off. Yeah. But right. Yep, that's right. Well, what I'm noticing about this is that, you know, well, it's all, you know, in the righteous terms, it's like I don't see how discontent is really helping and aiding any of these problems. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, just, I, I, I go back to the maxim I mentioned earlier. You already have one problem. The only question we're looking at now is whether or not you're going to bring on a second one. Whatever distress that is in your life, that's palpably true. It's there. Let's admit it. But being discontent means now you have two problems to solve, not just one. So. That's, that's really, it's really excellent because it, there's, a, <clears throat> there's a subtle censure or even a light rebuke in all of these that runs along those lines. When people are complaining about the state of the world, the state of the church, they forget it's, it's Christ's church whom he purchased. And he's the one who upholds, governs, disposes all things. So are you complaining about his management? Is that what you're saying? That he, it may be your church, but I don't think you're running it well. You could, you could improve some things. I have ideas, right? That's, that's really what you're saying. And so it's a, it's a slight censure against his active management of his church. And that's a truth that I think can be brought home to people. Jesus is not surprised by what's going on in his church. Jesus is not blind to what's going on in his church or to his people. And so you're claiming the right to discontent because Jesus isn't doing something about it or isn't doing what the thing you want done about it is unjustifiable. That's right. How would we answer um, number 12? It's not my trouble that troubles me. It's my sins that do disquiet and contempt me. Who's doing the sins? Well, I think maybe let's let's be put a charitable spin on it and say they can't they don't want they're they're like Paul. I, I find in myself I don't want to do this. I'm doing the things I don't want to do. And that's what troubles me. Excellent answer. That's that's part of it, sure. Absolutely. What else can we tell these troubled souls? I have heard very often from Christians that I'm just a sinner. I, I, I talked to somebody who was newly engaged, and she was, oh, well, our marriage will, will have difficulty because we're just sinners. And so I think it's not just the repentance. It's the, the encouragement that we have been given and also been equipped to go on 
send him on. That the, the idea that we are just stuck with the sin until you know until we die is you know very common, and I think that's wrong. I think sanctification is a process that we are in now and can look forward to improving. <laughs> Yeah, let, let's not forget our, our tagline, um, Westminster Strong, right there. <laughs> Westminster Strong, that's what it's all about. Put these things in your hearts, put them to death, folks. Um, yeah, remember your justification and repent, trust, move on. Yeah. For those keeping score, that's called brokenness theology. It that's is. It's a very popular thing of the day, the, the brokenness religion. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm not nearly as broken as I am evil. Is what I've discovered. <laughs> the problem is not that the parts don't all fit together; it's that they're hideous. So, all right. So we're jumping around today. Move on to the next section. Um, I asked for feedback about uh, different uh, questions that people would like answered and I've been saving some of those and I've got two I've, I've, I've addressed things as I went along as different ones came up but I didn't have a place to put these two so I'm going to answer I'm going to talk about two different things right now um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them but it, it could be something that we want to discuss afterwards if you have questions or need some clarification that's fine but because people did ask about them I want to mention them and the first thing is, how do we think about the idea of ambition and contentment? How, how, how do these ideas get together? And I, I think it's, it's at least well worth contemplating that the word ambition, I think, is tricky. Uh, the older usages of ambition um, had negative connotations attached to it. Ambition has not always been universally seen as something positive. Ambition has often had negative connotations. If your desires, for instance, were inordinate, you might be considered an overly ambitious person. And so it would be linked to these desires you have, and we'd want we'd to describe it in a way that wasn't complimentary. Um, there are also political uh, connotations related to someone who has ambitions at court, who has, who has desires for honor or power or rule or something along these lines. So I think just for the sake of clarity, we should be a little bit, uh, a little bit concerned uh, to make sure we're clear on what we're describing when we think about ambition. And I'd like to also point that... Um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory essay, has this interesting usage of the word ambition. I'm not going to read the essay, I just want to read part of the sentence to tell you that we need to think about this word carefully. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. Well, that's kind of interesting to put ambition in that list, and this is one of the ways Lewis was looking at it. So I, I guess the first thought I have about ambition is it's not universally applauded as a word or as a virtue that we should pursue. So we should at least be clear on what we're trying to think about it. But let's 
let's take, for instance, the idea or understanding of ambition is simply meaning how do we improve ourselves? How do we improve our lot? How do we better our conditions through, um, for the desire we have to have something nicer in life than we, we have? And that's a fair question. So when we think about the place in which we are, um, God has created us, there are many different dimensions that are often obscured from, from realizing. Uh, older language would, would suggest that it's your position in life to serve over here. You're not of noble blood, you're of common blood, so here are the vocations open to you. There might be some older ways of thinking about it, but when you think about the realm of contentment, one of the things you have to decide is who am I and where am I and what do I have in the world right now? But that, that's a, a sense in which it's, it's a little deceiving because one question you might wonder is why wasn't I born 695 years ago? Why am I born today? I mean, your circumstances in some measure reflect the time in which God decided to place you in this world and in this place. Another dimension that's often unconsidered is what about the parents I was given? What about the heritage? What about my grandparents? What about my lineage? Maybe I come from a family that has uh, strong tendencies in this direction. Maybe they were agricultural and I don't have that. Or maybe I don't want to be agricultural. There's all kinds of different ways we can think about who we are in the world around us today that are often unfactored as we think about our circumstances. Our circumstances involve more than just what we see around us. But when it comes to actually applying the creation mandate to go out and take dominion and to exercise that dominion and to contemplate the world, I've come up with maybe three rules that can be broadly applied for our aid in understanding. The first is, whatever it is that you think you need to do to improve yourself, you may not employ sinful means. So when you're thinking about where I am today, my circumstances and where I'd like to be, you may not under any circumstances employ sinful means to get there. And I'll refer to you uh, to Proverbs 1, 10 through 16, where it says, my son of sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, let's go wait in blood, let's take all their junk, and let's their bling, and let's bring it back, do not consent. For the sake of time, we're not going to read all of that. Uh, second, if the means are not sinful, the execution of the means might be. So let's say you have the opportunity to do something to better your circumstances in life or to change the circumstances in life, but doing so would involve a sinful execution of the plan, then no, that's not a valid plan. So perhaps you might want to go to college and you decide you're going to, you're going to do this, but you're already working one job and you're going to take another job and you're going to go borrow a bazillion dollars or something along those lines. Well, you may not be able to extract yourself out from under all that debt if you've got people who are dependent on you. You're not going to see them. You have to neglect them. If, if those are the circumstances, well, you can't do that. Maybe the job you're going to take uh, is a good job, but it's going to require you to be gone from worship for a while. 
uh, extended period of time. There's all kinds of ways in which the idea might be good, but the execution of the idea might be sinful. And if that's the case, then the answer is no. That particular method is not the way to improve or to better your circumstances. And the third thing may seem self-evident, but it's remarkably not in my experience. And that is to remember that sometimes things just don't work out. You have all kinds of plans on what you want to do. And when you get to the point of execution, you've done things that was not sinful to begin with. It was, it was not accomplished in a sinful way. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to improve myself, but it didn't work out. Sometimes things don't work out. And why is that? Well, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of unimaginable complexity. We can't see around the corner. We can't see very far down the road. And so we don't know what other external influences might converge. And sometimes you just become obsolete. And you have to do something about that. But sometimes things just don't work out. Um, the outcome of your endeavors belongs to God and to God alone. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. And sometimes he just disposes of things in ways that don't favor what you intended and all that. So there's nothing wrong with bettering yourself. In fact, there are good things about bettering yourself. The creation mandate is to exercise dominion through a variety of callings. And making the effectiveness of your calling something of a high priority is a good thing to embrace but realize the best kept gardens have weeds. And there's not always something you can do about that. So that was one of the uh, comments that were made. And the second one uh, is unrelated to it, uh, but asked two questions. And that is, how has technology contributed to discontentment and can foster contentment or even discontentment? So I have, I have a couple of kind of governing thoughts, because it's a the technology in question was not specified, so I'm not going to address a particular form of technology. But on the whole, I think it's important. Um, I've taken the position that on the whole, technology is morally neutral. By itself, the design, the equation, the formula, whatever it is, is largely in a neutral position. It's, I, I'm sure if we give some time, we could maybe find some technology that has no redeemable purpose to it or characteristic and we're just, it's over. That's fine. I'm not saying all technology is always under every circumstance, but as a rule, technology appears in my mind to be reasonably morally neutral. That doesn't mean the person inventing it was morally neutral. It might have been downright wicked. That's not the technology. That's the individual behind it. So technology generally comes with at least two edges on the sword. It can cut several different directions. Sometimes it cuts for the good, and sometimes it cuts for the ill. It can be used for sinful and for righteous purposes. I don't know how long Gutenberg had a printing press before somebody was printing salacious romantic novels. Right? You know, where, what are you trying to describe when you talk about technology? Was that the fault of Gutenberg? Is that the fault of the paper or the, the uh, block lettering? Or was that the fault of the author and maybe the conspiring distributors and others? It's an interesting discussion, but it's not the technology that does it. The other problem 
that we should factor is technology doesn't have any agency. We can look at technology and we can say technology did this. And technology's done a lot of harmful things. A lot of innocent people have been killed with AK-47s. People who did not judicially deserve to die. There have been a lot of API calls and credit card transactions given to facilitate all kinds of illegal and immoral activity, right? But technology doesn't have agency. And so when, we dis when we're thinking about technology and its role or relationship with contentment, we should probably take a step back to be careful to distinguish between the tool maker and the tool and who is wielding that tool. It's not always clear what those things, what those, what those different roles are. So um, the last thing I want to mention about technology is don't oversimplify the role of desire with technology. I'll, I'll, I'm going to fabricate some examples. Um, you have... We, we discussed desire earlier and how difficult it is. It is impossible for you to completely or even accurately be able to identify all of your own desires. All right? Now, I'm going to mention one instance of technology and desire and sin and see what you think about it. So, for instance, we have lots of ways to share uh, pictures. Lots and lots of ways to share pictures. So let's say some girl decides to share a picture of herself. Let's say she's not wearing nearly as many clothes as she ought to be wearing, right? But maybe she's wearing a fair number of clothes. So let's not make this just uh, uh, at the outright that it was a pornographic picture. But let's say somebody lusts after that girl when they see that picture. How should you think about something like that? Why did she post the picture? Well, maybe she posted the picture because she felt pretty that day. Was that her only desire? Was that the totality of her desire? Did she want to be admired for the way she felt or the way that she looked? Did she want someone else or more people to admire? Maybe people who shouldn't be admiring. Is that something she might have wanted? What about the person looking at the picture? See, there's all kinds of ways desire complicates the expression that was facilitated by the technological transaction. You could say the same thing, and I hope I do not see a picture of a 1968 Camaro today, especially an SS model, because however important all you all are, I'm not going to be thinking about you. I'm going to be thinking about the thrilling noise and the beauty of the 68 Camaro, right? So why did my neighbor show me a picture of his new 68 Camaro? This, I'm being vulnerable now. This really did happen. Why did he do that? I don't know why he did it. I suspect, in part, he was happy. He got this car. Who wouldn't be happy with the 68 Camaro? This would be a good time to raise your hand. Everybody will be happy with the 68 Camaro, right? Who wouldn't be happy with it? But now I'm thinking about a 68 Camaro in an inordinate fashion, right? So was that his fault? Paul says the law is good, for instance, but look what it does to me. It provokes and arouses desires. I didn't even know I was discontent until the law tell me, now you covet and you're filled with all kinds of things. 
So technology generally has the effect of reducing the transaction cost, reduces the barriers for things to accomplish. So it's not that technology did it, but technology enabled us to express the complexity of our desires and to not understand or anticipate how those desires might be found in other people on the other side of that transaction. So if you think about the way you use technology, you can't be responsible for how everybody responds to everything. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is it's complicated and you're not gonna disentangle it. Those were the two major concerns or questions people had wanting to get further illustration. Do we have any comments on those before I close the class with two last items? Well, regarding the 68 Camaro, for me, it would be, okay, how much can I sell it for? <laughs> I can't drive. Yeah, 68 Camaro. All right, so here's my, um, everybody likes top 10 lists. I do. Here's my top 10 list for this class on contentment. Things that I benefited from. Contentment is a wide idea, and the Puritans attacked it from many different angles. They looked at contentment as not a single thing, but a cluster of things together. That was helpful for me to see it that way. I was greatly helped by seeing the tight relationship between contentment and covetousness, something I think I underappreciated before. I was glad for that. I was also glad to understand that the creation mandate itself provides many opportunities. It's designed, designed for you to experience contentment. And when it comes down to you or a sparrow, I am way more important to Jesus than that sparrow is. That's a good reminder. Number five, meekness requires perspective. It's strange how it needs to show up in our lives, but God rules, I submit. That's an easy takeaway, but boy, does it show up in weird places. The sin of murmuring is quite serious, often underappreciated. Number three, sins cluster. We saw a whole section on this in the class, how sins are like troubles and spies. They don't come at us one by one. They come at us in a cluster. Desires are hard to honestly appraise. I don't know. They may be impossible. And number one, I need to be very sensible in both senses of the word. I need to be sensible. So those are my top ten takeaway. We have a couple of minutes. And... I will let you guys have the last word. Thoughts on the class as a whole?
So when he tells me, it's a big world, I'm a little person, and then he cuts his eyes at me and says, you're old. <laughs> right? Yeah. So. That's right. Yeah. But you, you are. Providence is one of the pillars. You cannot understand contentment without providence. Absolutely cannot. What other thoughts? Open forum. Life is short, absolutely, and eternity is long. Well, uh, in fact, that's what that's what uh, books says here in this closing statement. Yeah, don't be overwhelmed, folks. You can do this. What other thoughts, comments before we close it down? Yeah. Um, I think that 